So I am with uh, Dr. David Mars, who is a developer of AEDP for couples. Uh, hi, David. Hello, Serge. Good, good, good to be with you. Yeah, yeah. So, so what is it that makes AEDP for couples unique? You know, AEDP for couples is unique in the sense that we begin the initial couple therapy session with the question, what is it that you want with your partner? We don't ask what's your problem with your partner, what makes you upset with your partner. Um, we really are beginning right from the first session with what is the motivation to be together as a couple and the specifics of what people want and to move away from complaints, irritation, anger, put-downs, uh, frustration, and to go directly to what the couple wants and put aside their tendency toward adversarial collision. Mm -hmm. And just we know there are problems, clearly. But we begin with a basis of what really matters to each couple member. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's a very elegant way to avoid falling into the trap of old complaints. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, most of the time when couple members come in, what they're obsessed with is what their partner is doing that disturbs them or the partner is doing that doesn't meet their needs. And in each case, the result is for the partner who is being faulted to feel shamed, to feel displaced from the sense of being good. And that what we're looking for is what is good, what is pleasurable that they used to have or they want to have again, and that they maybe have never had. And to let them form that in the first few minutes of the first session, then to continue that as long as they can in the session until it's clear we need to get to what's in the way of what they want. Mm -hmm. But once that base is established of the therapies about them each having what they want and need, this is settling the nervous system and a greater sense of self at best that gets emerged. So each couple member can be the way they want to be with each other and to show how they are really desirable, that they want to be able to be lovable. They want to learn how to love better. That's really the, the core of the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so just um, um, focused on that goal of um, how they want to be with each other and how yes. to be in a loving relationship. Yes. And then from that perspective, deal with, with what is in the way. Yeah. To be a little more specific about how AEDP for couples is oriented, um, AEDP stands for Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy. And this is the couple's model. And it, it really originates at its core from AEDP for individuals. And that's part of the AEDP Institute's mission um, with Diana Fosha as the originator of AEDP. And the work that we do is, as a faculty of 23 members, we work worldwide to um, teach AEDP and AEDP for couples to therapists. And my wife, Karen Panamars, and I teach the ADP for couples aspect of it. There are three different aspects of ADP for couples that are different from the individual work of ADP. One is that we integrate um, authentic movement principles of witness consciousness with I statements, with being present in the moment, with being able to access seven channels of experience, sensation, emotion, energy, movement, auditory, and visual. We're not just looking for um, discovering what is the emotion. It's not just emotion-focused. It's all the body's experiences. And according to Shore, Siegel, and other prominent 
effective neuroscientists, um, the experience of the whole body is involved in love, in relationship, in collaboration, or in disconnection and dis- dissociation. So for the ADP for couples therapists to become more and more proficient and being able to access channels of experience that match the channels of experience that the couple members are having allows that therapist to be more effective rather than always prioritizing emotion as the gold, the gold, uh, the golden coin, so to speak, which can be very shaming for avoidant people who don't really orient to emotion as their primary way of knowing. It just made me feel like they're a failure in therapy because they can't access any emotion other than a slight irritation. And that's, that is a big difference in this model of being flexible as the therapist to meet the person where they live and then help them to get to core emotion. But yeah. not to begin there necessarily. Yeah, so, so, so I'm hearing that there is a, a desire to recognize that people are different and they're going to have different channels for uh, experience. And uh, you're certainly, you know, the, the one of what happens often in therapy is that the privileged channel is that of emotion. But uh, as a way to involve all the different experiences, you're not just focusing on that one. And it has the additional benefit of actually widening uh, people's understanding of their own experience instead of seeing it through a single lens. Yes, and that's it's very clearly put, Serge. You know, part of the delight that I have in practicing AADP for couples is the knowledge that all of us, me included, have been crimped in certain channels of experience, have been crimped in our capacity to access energetic phenomena. We've been crimped in the access of hearing the meaning of speech tone and getting speech tone accurately, even when speech tone is goes in aggravation or anger. And to be able to regulate ourselves as therapists is immensely important, particularly in couples therapy, because a couple's already coming in agitated, um, depressed, outright enraged. And for us to be able to regulate ourselves and not get hooked into the trance of the couple is essential. Part of the work of ADP for couples is based on the work of Bowlby about defensive exclusion. More than 40 years ago, Bowlby understood that the patterns of relational um, experience and relational expression are based on an internal working model that's preset. And it has been discovered by, by Mainz and, and others is that the, the internal working model is established on attachment experiences that are not in conscious memory. It's about memory that is implicit, memory that forms forms procedural learning and is very powerful in determining reflexive behavior, but it's not necessarily helpful in being creative and responsive and being able to be free to have new experiences that we've never seen anyone have before in a, in a relational dynamic. So, so there's a sense of um, um, wanting to free people from a knee-jerk uh, reference to attachment patterns that have been learned early and have become so implicit, you know, uh, entrenched that it's hard to be aware of them. Yes, yes. I appreciate your summary of that. You know, part of the power of our current knowing in this last decade in particular is that the affective neuroscience has continued to move forward, particularly with the work of Bud Craig, who's been really coming forward for the last 40 years. In the last um, three years or so, he published a book what do you feel? And, and uh, pardon me, how, how do you feel? 
And the, the question is really, in a way, two-pronged. How do you feel means how are you feeling right now, but actually, how do we feel as human beings? And much of the feeling capacity we have is based on the interior cingulate and its connection to the insula, the right insula as a full storehouse of negative memories, of fearful and anxiety-provoking memories of what goes wrong. The left insula, on the other hand, um, Bud Craig describes, is based on affiliative responses, the long to connect, the urge to do something new, the and it's directly linked to parasympathetic dominance in the nervous system, to relaxation response, where the right insula is connected with sympathetic arousal, with depression, with an experience of somatization and reactivity, which is based on the old, whereas the left insula is more about what could happen now, what could be new. That's very much what ADP for couples is oriented to, is the new and the emergent. Yeah, yeah. So, so as in many circumstances, um, uh, that we tend to be oriented toward, uh, you know, don't get burned and toward what is negative. Um, and so it takes a, a bit of an intentionality in order to reorient people toward what is going to be opening up new vistas for the future. Yes, yes, that's very true. What I'm delighting in is how Bud Craig in his book in the last three chapters of How Do You Feel, uh, he makes it actually quite readable. As anyone in the affective neuroscience field who's an empir- empirical scientist, he has very long words that are very specific to brain science. But the last three chapters, he really describes very vividly how multiple dimensions of research all um, cohere in the area of how the insula is central in directing consciousness and how literally when the left and right hemisphere of the insula alone are aligned, left and right insula, when they're connecting and well-yoked and collaborative, that literally the IQ increases of that person. So, so that, that possibility of actually uh, the two hemispheres of the insula uh, being so connected Yes, that it literally makes a kind of a body intelligence in addition to our cognitive intelligence and links the two in a kind of discernment capacity. So part of ADP for couples is that we work with the concept of if we are tracking in our bodies sensation, emotion, energy, movement, auditory, visual, and imaginal well, we get discernment, which is increased. We have more body knowing. The gut, heart, and mind are connected. We can have an experience of being free to know in a way that is beyond our usual intuition, but is actually a knowing which is part of the core neurobiological self. And this links to the work of Jacques Panksepp. The core neurobiological self is the beings that we are when defenses are lowered and softened. Our capacities to be, if you will, a being of nature, uh, like a hummingbird, like uh, any creature in nature that knows how to Um, bring young into the world, how to provide a home, how to deal with aggression impulses. As many of you know, hummingbirds can be quite aggressive, but even though they're so tiny, they work it out, they get through winters, and and by some miracle of guidance, and for us humans too, 
is a miracle of guidance that's required to get through our complex lives yeah. in relatively large bodies, particularly these large prefrontal cortexes, makes it much more difficult to navigate through life. Yeah. So, so in other words, some of the things that make us so much more advanced uh, also <clears throat> hamper us because we tend to privilege them. And uh, by paying attention to all the different ways of experiencing, you get to that core biologic, biological being uh, yes. and, in a way, get the um, accuracy or the, the, the appropriateness of functioning that animals have, including the hummingbird. Yes, this is very true. And I'm, I'm so interested in how the... I'll give you an example. I'm going to be giving a, a webinar... Um, starting uh, um, December 11th. And it's about the remarkable capacity of human beings to learn through movement. In this webinar, I'm going to be showing uh, what I call the Body Awareness Group in 1975. There were a series of these that I led with people who were developmentally disabled, some some blind, some deaf, some with cerebral palsy, um, some with autism some with IQs that were untestable, IQs of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, some who were uh, borderline normal of intelligence, but still have been warehoused in uh, mental institutions since they were born. By medical advice, they were put into institutions in infancy, basically warehoused in them. And these people were then released into the community in the Johnson administration in the mid-70s. I was a social worker at the time. It was my role to work with these people to help them to adapt to the community because they had no sense of how to be. And I would see them in their sheltered workshop classes where they're learning to discern a nickel, a dime, and a quarter so they could ride the buses. I'd see them week after week, and they were not learning the difference between a nickel, dime, and a quarter. They didn't have the capacity. But in these body awareness groups, they very rapidly ascended from the basic group to the medium level group to the highest challenge group simply by being worked with non-verbally, with movement, with kindness, with a sense of being met with friendliness and being able to have laughter and fun with each other in ways that involve mirroring each other's bodies, being able to do aggression exercises like being a lion, or doing things that they could do without language particularly. And they grew tremendously in the course of 10, 20, 30 weeks, and their relational capacity to be peaceful and loving with each other and appropriate was just remarkable. So we could assume this is not because they suddenly grew in their IQ, but because they grew in their relational capacity based on the parts of the brain that relate to primarily right brain functions of loving and needing to be loved, being able to be kind, being able to be firm, have boundaries and be clear. And I'm going to be showing this for the first time in uh, over 40 years. Um, coming up on this this webinar. So I'm very excited to share it with therapists who uh, will be coming in for this worldwide to see this session and other sessions in the previous work that I've done with more functional couples um, in my current practice life. But so so that's a, it's, a, it's a perfect natural experiment of seeing people who don't have a high IQ by any standard yeah. Yeah. Um, and to see uh, how, despite these limitations, um, there is that possibility of actually um, getting a higher emotional intelligence um, yes. through yes. 
that practice of being mirrored, of being uh, met with attunement, and of uh, exploring the range of their emotional experience and expression. Yeah, that's very accurate. You know, I still smile thinking about these individuals and how much personality they each have. It's very distinctive to them. And part of our way of working was to use video. And at that time in 1975, what I was able to get is a reel-to-reel, half-inch, black and white. And literally, when we edited it, we spliced it with tape and literally cut it and pasted it. And uh, the delight for me is that we were able to resurrect this tape uh, from 1975 and to see how these people are growing in their capacity to help each other. This is the other part that was so fascinating. The blind person helped the person who was deaf. The person with autism helped the other people, partly to just simply love him because he was so um, in his own world, dissociated so much of the time. But the people on the other side of him, left and right, would help him to remember that we're where we are together and we're how we are together. And he grew very much in this context because it was through that kindness of others around him, touching his arms, saying, not now, Jim, wait, just pay attention. We're not doing that right now. It's that quality of uh, seeing how love and that kindness of guiding directly applies to couples' lives. Primarily, I show my love to my wife by being kind to her, by being helpful to her, by washing the dishes late last night, by doing things to give her a sense of relief that I'm not just being romantic, but I'm being considerate. This is huge for couples who've had lives that often in their everyday life where they don't feel noticed or received or met because their words get forgotten, particularly if they're highly emotional, that their partner may not remember what they say because the way they say it triggers dissociation. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm noticing how uh, touched you are um, by that experience way back when, but also by uh, seeing in everyday life um, what happens when people go through the trouble of actually expressing that kind of loving kindness. Yes, that's very true. Uh, you know, Terry Real uh, was a uh, quite a brilliant presenter. He has this very simple thing he says in his workshop uh, workshops. Um, there's nothing more effective than fi- uh, firm kindness to communicate what we want to communicate. This is very true in couples' lives. I want to mention about dorsal vagal response. Stephen Porges has done a great service in the world over the last, I'd say, nearly 40 years, certainly 35 years, of bringing forward his work on polyvagal theory. And I remember Stephen Porges presenting in the 70s when I was presenting also in state and national conventions about biofeedback. Psychophysiology was the context we were in, um, Steve Porges and I, and teaching uh, workshops and helping people to learn about it. How, how dorsal vagal connects to couples therapy is that when a couple member is highly excited, let's say I'm an anxiously attached uh, person in a couple, and my partner is avoidantly attached. Let's say I'm an anxiously attached male. Not as common as anxiously attached females, but let's say I am that. When I get emotionally upset and insecure, I talk to my wife, who's really quite avoidant in ways I'm trying to break through her defenses, trying to get through to her because she's hard to reach. So I raise my voice louder or make my voice more sort of, I'm trying to appeal to her, to get her to hear my plea that she'd understand me. 
which I don't find very dignified, but I'm really trying to get through to her. As I do it, she feels overpenetrated. She feels like I'm pushing her. And so she begins to dissociate, get disconnected. And in some cases, going to dorsal vagal response. Now, in truth, dorsal vagal is not as common in women as it is in men. It is more uh, prone for men to dissociate and go into dorsal vagal slump. I want to describe this for those of you who don't know what this is. What dorsal vagal is, is the person begins, first of all, to be anxious, so to feel pressure, and that their own experience of fight or flight isn't sufficient to deal with their level of anxiety and feeling pressured and feeling helpless to escape. So they begin to go into more of a torporous state to get more, uh, you may see them rubbing their eyes or yawning repeatedly. And to try to keep themselves awake, they're making efforts to be um, just kind of reconnecting themselves, but it's not working. As long as the partner begins to um, keep on aggressing to get through to them, they'll keep fading away, going more into dorsal vagal, whereas the partner then feels is abandoning them. They get more and more upset, excited about that, and want to get the partner back to them. But the harder they push is a triangle like this, continuing to drift away. Now, for those of us that do couples therapy, we may literally see them on the couch or in chairs in that kind of a dynamic where one's leaning and one's leaning away. And when we see that, we can know that one person may be in beginning to get into dorsal vagal response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're very beautifully describing that dance um, that, uh, you know, that as one partner feels frustrated that, you know, I can't get through to my partner, there's that pushing. And then the corresponding effect of feeling invaded and not having any possibility of either fighting or running away. And so comes that fading uh, that is essentially kind of uh, um, immobilization, dorsal vagal response. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that increases the other partner's tendency to push. And yeah. we have that uh, vicious cycle. Yeah, very true. You know, I, I, when I'm in sessions, and this begins to occur, where a partner is beginning to be more shrill and more demanding, and the frustration in them is partly based on abandonment experiences that have happened hundreds or even thousands of times in the relationship, where they get where they express gets forgotten, where he's even heard in the first place. And I have empathy for them and care, but even more, I have compassion. Now, compassion, our effect of neuroscience shows us, is really based in the ventrotegmental region of the brain, which is the center for love and being in love. It's different from having to match emotion. If I have to match emotion through empathy with the person's being in an abandonment reflex, that will not help me as a therapist to be refreshed at the end of the session. I don't want to go there necessarily. That level of anxiety, that level of depression, that level of sorrow. I may want to more be in a compassion mode so I can be loving and kind and say, you know, Judith, when your voice gets in that pitch, can you see what happens to John? Do you notice what happens? Oh, my God, do I notice? I see it every day. So, well, just Judith, this is a new experience, Judith. Just to just take a moment. If you lower your voice pitch, I've got to express myself. I know, Judith, I want you to be heard, though. Please, just try lowering your volume of your voice, your pitch of your voice, and the pace of your speaking. speaking, And see if John can actually receive you. John, would you be willing just to turn to her and just listen to her again freshly? Just try it again, Judith. Slower, lower pitch. Just really let him know what you want. 
not your complaint, just what you want. See if he'll receive you. And right away, as John, my, my eyes look softer, my mouth is more relaxed, I'm not having gestures like this. I'm much more in my body, preparing for something that won't make me feel helpless and like an incompetent. So as my wife begins again to say, what I really want with you, John, is I want to feel you. I want to feel that you love me. That's what I really want. And she begins to get teary. Right away, John's eyes begin to tear up. Her mirror neurons and his mirror neurons are now linked. Her cardiac coherence is more relaxed. She's transmitting what is really a beam of longing and love rather than demand and complaint. As John, this is what I miss about Judith. I remember her in early days, how sweet she was, how loving, before we had the four kids, before I had this huge job to support the house. I remember her in this place. So as John, my left insula is perked up. I long to reach her. I want to reach her. My right insula is quiet now because I'm not stressed out by her voice. And I can begin to feel, Judith, I do love you. I'm sorry I don't show it more. I'm sorry I don't show my caring more. He says, guys, I'm getting choked up. I'm sorry. And she says, you don't need to tell me you're sorry. For me, John, this isn't choked up. This is me feeling you. I need to feel you like this. And then I can say to her, John, how do you know he's feeling you? And she says, John, I see your eyes are moist. I see your look, you've got pink in your cheeks. I just, I feel my love for you because I've been with you these 35 years for a good reason. I really want to be with you like this. What is this like for you, John, to hear her receive you this way? Oh, this is great. I, I want to, we could just go home now. What do you say? <laughs> I think we did what we have to do today. This, I'm good. so that was beautiful that was beautiful on so many different levels and uh and one of the things that uh, i felt as you were talking is uh, earlier in the conversation you referred to uh, that firm kindness Um, and it felt like uh, this is what you're practicing as a therapist is a sense of um uh a kindness, but kindness that's going toward a strategic goal has an idea of what the roadmap is. And so you're not just kind in a sense of letting happen whatever happens, but of guiding people uh, to go a little beyond their comfort zone in order to find that place where they're going to be able to find that ability to uh, uh, to communicate. Yes. Um, yeah, I feel very understood by you, sir. It's very clear. Going beyond their comfort zone. And I want to say a little more about it on the affective neuroscience level. The comfort zone is really based on the prefrontal cortex, top three layers. The top three layers, I like to think of them as leathery. They're very durable. They're very firm. They really repeat very accurately. 10% of the information of what's dangerous will trigger a reaction as if though the 90% has already happened. So as John, I can predict this is gonna go down the sinkhole again, right away, just by seeing her furrowed brow, her mouth looking angry, her voice pitch being, being uh, pleading or being desperate. And I just move away from this because she reminds me of my mother. And the horror of my mother's dysregulation is so known to me. I, I don't wanna see this again. Sorry about the interruption. No problem. So 
just need to get you back again so I can see you. So yeah. I'm aware of that call coming through. Um, yeah, just, so we're we're gonna we're gonna restart the, the that part. We'll cut this. Yeah. Let, let, let me just take it as a um, as a opportunity to do a spontaneous cue. So for me, my nervous system gets shocked. I'm having this experience of not knowing what just happened. It's a new feature in my computer that a call came through for the first time while I'm in a webinar context or podcast context of a client calling me. So I'm startled. I don't know what's going on. And then I figure it out what it is. And I <laughs> deal with the technology, get back on the call with you, Serge, get back to my pleasure of being with you. My enjoyment of the audience I'm imagining is seeing this. And I come back to a sense of humor. So life is not perfect. Things happen in sessions that can startle me and push me off my center and can create a right insula remembrance of other failures or a feeling of disturbance of being interrupted. But if I can get back the sense of humor, sense of ease, a quality of, yeah, this is okay, I'll get through it. That's a left insula longing and affiliate of longing to get back on the session with you, Serge, to get back to, get back to the audience and to recover what I wanted to say, which is that the the top three layers of the prefrontal cortex are formatted for durability and for survival. But what we really want to get to as couple therapists, no matter what our model is, is the bottom three layers. The bottom three layers, layers one, two, and three, are experience hungry. They are not preformatted. They're still learning what it is to be alive. And new experiences come through, like this experience with you right now, Serge, of getting to know you a bit and and have a connection with you, and more at ease with you, and to feel there's an optimism in me that grows of an experience of well-being in my gut, a feeling, happy feeling in my heart, the joy of hearing you repeat what I'm saying in a summary way that feels clear to me, feeling a conversation with you. That builds in me an upward-moving experience of positivity, of positive sensations, a pleasure, of, of energies that move upward that also feel affirmative, and they all match with each other. The emotion of happiness matches the sense of rising happy energy. They're all together in a justifiable sense, a verifiable sense of truth. When there's channel matching, there's a verifiable truth in us that we can know in our bodies that creates a new experience that moves upward to the fourth layer. When it gets that high, Siegel calls that the zone of creativity. So we really know something new is happening inside. And we metaprocess that. What's this like? I mean, this new experience right now for me with Surge. I can talk about it and summarize it and be aware of how it is for me to be with you. I wonder if you would do that with me, Surge. What's it like for you to be with me right now and describe your experience in your body? Good, good. So <laughs> before doing that, I'm going to just go a little bit with the uh, what happened. Sure. And, um, and, and so that moment of serendipity when there is a phone call that comes, and uh, as I am focusing on the product, if you want, and the video, uh, my first reaction is to say, okay, we can edit that. And um, what your reaction is, is to say, okay, actually, this is a wonderful moment, because this is a moment where something unexpected happens, and as a human being, I'm thrown off guard. But um, I can actually be aware of observing the shift from the part of my brain that is surprised and reactive to it to the part that actually is able to be in the experience um, and, um, and actually enjoy the experience and from that place see the experience actually getting enriched by more information. 
And as I'm describing this happening to you, I'm aware that is actually corresponded to my experience of sharing that experience with you. Um, A a sense of, oh, there's a little bit of um, um, something that, in a way, dealing with the uncertainty or unpredictability of the moment um, and enjoying it. Yep, exactly. I appreciate that. I mean, it's savoring the unpredictable, and particularly saving the capacity to get through it to a new place. Yeah. I'm in a new place with you. I feel in a new place with myself. I feel in a new place with the audience. There's a quality of how I can feel enriched by a surprise. And one of the parts of ADP for couples that I love is to, to really be curious rather than furious. To be interested in how, how can I make hay from this situation and the sun shining how how can I harvest this as something useful for myself and for people that I love? Particularly because when I think about couple work, I always think about the children, no matter how old they are. But particularly if they're in that formative stage from birth to age three or age seven or age nine or age 13. All these developmental stages in which either the person's traumatized and being crimped further or their early crimping that they got in early life of their channels of experience are being potentially opened. So when I'm working with parents who have three-year-old and perhaps a one-year-old, I know that as they're getting more peaceful in their communication, when mommy can feel daddy loves her and daddy can feel daddy loves mommy, the babies, and research shows us clearly, pick this up and they're more statistically likely to be having secure attachment if the babies know and the toddlers and the little children know that mommy is loved by daddy. The research doesn't necessarily bear it out the same way for fathers being loved by mothers. But clearly, it's a positive synergy here. When daddy feels loved by mommy, he's much more prone to be loving toward mommy. And it all goes around where it's inevitable that in every couples therapy that I do, that even acting out children have been acting out for many years, begin to settle down, to become more focused on their schoolwork, to be more able to have their friendships, and their anxiety level drops because the field they live in is more calm, more secure, more easy, because mom and dad are really able to do this with each other rather than this or be merged and looking for the other person to submit to the merger. Just a a life that really is more, in a word, healthy. It spreads around. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is something that uh, certainly um, emotionally um, is, uh, is, um, is, uh, moving. Um, and that sense that as people, um, we are vessels transmitting, um, the flavor of what the world is like. And uh, when we're talking about attachment, um, it's really that sense of how we behave as a couple, uh, is going to be perceived by the children and is going to color their engagement with the world in years to come, uh, much more than all the uh, uh, pronouncements that we might have made about things like that. That's so true. I really appreciate what you're saying. I want to come to what you said about the life of the couple and how in some ceremonies, the way the ceremony goes is for marriage, there's a lit candle here, a lit candle here, representing the husband and the wife, no matter they're same sex or heterosexual. And that there's a middle candle. And in some ceremonies that I've seen, 
the candle for the husband, the candle for the wife come and they light the candle in the center. And then the officiant blows out the other two candles, leaving one candle burning. Now, when I remember this, I still get chills down my neck. Mm. My arm hairs stand up. This is a prescription for, from my point of view, disaster. <laughs> People need to be who they are. They can't be just one being. We really, ideally, both candles are still burning, and the light of love of the couple is still burning too. Three entities still exist. And in couple members where one couple assumes the wife will merge with him, or the wife assumes if it's a heterosexual couple, the husband will move, merge with her, the, the quality of that assumption is behind many, many, many battles of life, because that perhaps was modeled in early life. But ultimately, in ADP for couples, we're looking for differentiation, for cross-pollination. We know that in, in anthropological studies, that people tend to seek people who are different from themselves to mate with and to bond with. By definition, that means you can have somebody different. And that difference can be a source of complaint and battle, or it can be a source of trust. What you have to say is not quite like me, but in a loose way of connecting, I can get what you're saying. I can see the truth in it. We say that often to couples and 80 people couples. What is true what your partner's saying? I get the point of argument, but what is true in your values? What is true in what he or she is saying? When he says to his male partner, I see it this way. Another guy says, I see it that way. Can you get how you two can be cross-pollinating in a way that's enriching in a way you've never seen before in your growing up life? We actually become a team of understanding that goes way beyond what any one of you could understand alone, but in like a recombinant way you can join with each other. You can become a team that really meets and we learn from each other from this day forward all the way through life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a sense of very similar to the uh, candle, that sense of out of two candles you have one, that sense that we have that tendency to seek truth as being one. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the encouragement you have for couples to actually see the perspective of the other partner. Yes. And um, and to focus on that. Yeah. <laughs> My wife just walked by. I'm just thinking about her. We've been married for 34 years and together 36 years. Karen Pinamars and I teach a lot of workshops together. We fly around and across. <laughs> we'll be going to China uh, in the spring. We'll be going to D.C. We'll be going to uh, um, Denver this weekend. We're constantly flying and traveling at different schedules often. But the beautiful thing for me is when I teach with her, and we did a five-day intensive uh, in Boston in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the summer. We're doing, we just did a three-day intensive here in California with the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists. And that's a pressure cooker often of stress to get everything done in time. But the beauty is that because there's love between us, if she's in a place of being behind on her schedule, or I am, where we got some surprise, which always happens, some last-minute surprise. How to, how to cope with it becomes part of the art form of our marriage. And to let the what could be what rips us apart bring us more closely together uh, through that attunement, disruption, and repair. Just attunement, disruption, and repair. To let it happen, and not take it personally, that something went off the rails, or I went off the rails, or she went off the rails. But to understand that Getting back on the rails is inevitable as long as we are willing to do it. 
and that will get stronger and continue getting stronger as my father's now, now 91, still married to my mother, soon to be 92 this month. My mother's 92 as well. They're basically pain-free. They're medication-free virtually, other than some blood pressure meds for my father. They've been married for, since they're 18, something like 70, over, over 70 years. And the quality of their marriage is that they become more harmonious, remarkably, at night, really nearly 92, than they were when I was 12. <laughs> Thank goodness. They keep on growing and growing and growing. Their main medium is about love. And my parents are the inspiration for ADP for couples, not because I think they were perfect as parents or as couple members, but because their love is sustaining. Their love was a central feature that they worked with throughout their lives, despite not having higher education, despite having very traumatized um, childhoods from birth on. They ended up healing, not through psychotherapy, but through simply loving each other and through the children loving them and us loving them and our grandchildren and all that being part of their fund of life is good, life is pleasurable, life is worth living and worth staying healthy for. So they're really an emblem for me of great joy that they are still alive, bless them. And they, they go on uh, as they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that sense of um, how powerful love a loving relationship is and how you've seen it uh, strengthen over time uh, with your parents. Um, What I also, earlier what you said is something that I found touching is that sense of, um, you know, as you were talking about rupture and repair, uh, you used a phrase to say that, um, um, I forgot exactly what, but is the art form of our marriage. Yeah. and um, and I love that idea of um, um, that you know there is an art form in the relationship that you're cultivating. You know that sense of loving, that sense of uh, yeah. I think you said coping with difficulties is the art form of our marriage. And so yeah. what I liked about that is that you know just as the idea of suffering and difficulties are unavoidable, yeah. um, but embracing them as the vessel for, you know, making it the art form and a vessel for growth sounds like a wonderful way to deal with it. Yes. I like your language a lot. A vessel for growth and an art form being reinforced. I mean, the beauty of us humans, from my point of view, is despite having memories that can recall all kinds of awful things that have happened in life, that we always have the mindfulness capacity to change neighborhoods, to not stay in the neighborhood of distress and stress disappointment, disgust, contempt. <laughs> of all things that can destroy love, contempt is a major contender. And to be able to switch out of it and say, you know, right now I'm being contemptuous. I'm really irritated. I'm triggered. I can get out of this bad neighborhood that I'm in and switch to my feeling of love for my partner. And I can feel the love by choice. The felt experience of love is so profound because in just experiencing love, even without the partner physically present, we produce more dopamine, we produce more oxytocin, we produce more acetylcholine. In our synaptic capsules, we have more lasting experiences because of the acetylcholine, and because of the experience of love being pleasurable, we want more of it. The natural seeking of love, not just sexually, but in all the ways love can be expressed through kindness and through a sense of we are connected, we have continuity, that's more valuable 
then the latest disruption and latest bump in the road is quite irrelevant, really, unless we can consider it as a tool for a greater art form development. Then it's really useful to have bumps in the road. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so very much that sense of intentionality. And so in some way, we come back to what you said at the beginning, that as you see couples, you ask them what they want, uh, how they want what they want to make of their relationship, where they want to go. Uh, And this, uh, you were giving an example of how uh, in practice, in everyday life as a couple, this is what guides you. Yes. Yes, it's very true. I I sometimes look at the number of hours that I work and the amount of travel that I do, and I think, why am I doing this? (laughs) And I like the question because it makes me have to answer it. Uh, The main motivation for me is to spread love in the world and to spread justice above all. Uh, Children who are born into families infants that are born to families, of great distress, of multi-generational um, unhealed trauma, alcoholism, drug addiction, or even just addiction to being right. All of those addictions um, will affect those young beings who are growing beyond justice. It's not just for them to be exposed, these, the space junk of generations being dumped on them. And for me, the experience of knowing that more babies will come into the world, more toddlers, Um, six years old, nine years old children with more coherent parents or more loving, more capable to heal what has already been damaged in their children through their own dysfunction, unintentional dysfunction. That has great meaning for the future of the world. And so it's consider each of us as therapists, how many people each affect all the people they touch in their lives, the store clerks they may meet, the people on the street they may meet, the boss they may work for, their coworkers. The spreading of love is contagious. And the spreading of goodness and kindness and firmness is good for the world. So that really is motivational to me at the deepest level. It helps me to be here with you, Serge, and with the audience who's with us as well. So that feels like a wonderful place to end. Um, does it feel right for you to end on that note? Yes, that sounds great to me. That's and certainly good. I would share uh, that um, uh, not only is it a, a personal motivation at a personal level. But as you stated that way, there's a sense of um, being part of something larger, a sense of um, being part of a group of people uh, who in each in their own different ways are helping uh, spread that experience, not just a message that would be abstract, but actually an experience of what love can be in a way that can be actually shared. That's very, very clear, Serge. I want to thank you for this podcast service that you're offering. And if there were time, I'd love to hear you say what motivates you. Do you want to say? <laughs> well, I, I feel that I, I was very touched by what you were saying because mine is very, very, very similar to you. Yes. I would, uh, I would very much use the same words you're using. Yes, I'm glad to hear that. And I would, I would like to uh, also say to, to our audience I'm glad to imagine you being inspired by this podcast and to imagine seeing you at a future training uh, anywhere in the world that it, you might be. So um, we're welcome, and uh, I hope to meet you in person sometime soon. Thanks, David. Yeah, th- thank you, Serge. This is part of the Relational Implicit podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to relationalimplicit.com.